Welcome to the Weird Era Podcast. Today we're talking to author Lillian Fishman about her debut novel, Acts of Service. Lillian Fishman was born in 1994 and lives in New York. She received her MFA from NYU, where she was a Jill Davis fellow. Acts of Service is her first novel. Eve uh, has an adoring girlfriend, an impulsive streak, and a secret fear that she's wasting her brief youth with just one person. So one evening, she posts some nudes online. This is how Eve meets Olivia, and through Olivia, the charismatic Nathan. Despite her better instincts, the three soon begin a relationship, one that disturbs Eve as much as it enthralls her. As each act of their affair unfolds across a cold and glittering New York, Eve is forced to confront the questions that most consume her. What do we bring to sex? What does it reveal of ourselves and one another? And how do we reconcile what we want with what we think we should want? In the way only great fiction can, Acts of Service takes between its teeth the contradictions written all over our ideas of sex and sexuality. At once juicy and intellectually challenging, sacred and profane, Lillian Fishman's riveting debut is bold, unabashed, and required reading of the most pleasurable sort. Hi, Lillian. Thanks so much for being here. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. In an interview you did with The Cut, um, I learned that Acts of Service started off as an attempt to write a book on queerness, but ended up needing to be about heterosexuality. You sort of talk about it as a necessity. I wanted to talk to you more about this. Why do you think it transitioned that way? And in what ways did queerness bring you to heterosexuality? Yeah, it's a really good question that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, In the original draft of the novel that I did, which was really very much about the same themes, um, like about this question of, uh, you know, our given ideas about sexuality, the idea that you have a sexual identity to discover and that once you discover it, it will sort of like become clear to you and you'll be nourished by it and fulfilled by it and you won't have um, anxiety or confusion about it. Uh, It was definitely about those themes, but the original draft... Uh, followed Eve from when she was in high school and her first relationship with her first girlfriend. Um, And the only relic of that that you can see in the book now is um, in the early conversations that Eve and her girlfriend Romy have in the first couple chapters of the book. Um, But basically, once I started writing the scenes between Eve and Nathan and Olivia, it was clear to me that that was going to be the best way to tease out what I wanted to write about. And... I think basically the more that I wrote about um, Eve's sort of the the problem that she was having in her relationships with women, like the set of problems that she was having, which range from like confusion over how to have a, a relationship with another woman that isn't interpolated by misogyny, like ranging from that to just like a vacuum of confidence or dominance or power in, in the relationship she has with women, which is an assumed dynamic in heterosexual relationships. Like the problems that she was having in those relationships, um, the way, the way to explore them was to get to the contrast, right? Like 
what's the thing that she needs to do in order to like highlight what's wrong and why it might be wrong and like why there's a block on that kind of dynamic between two women that a man who socializes a man can sort of like sweep into and unlock. Like, I think I just realized that, um, yeah, I needed to highlight the contrast. And that's why in the book you have her relationships with two women, with her girlfriend, Romy and um, Olivia, who she meets online and then Nathan, who she meets through Olivia. Surely there are power dynamics in queer relationships too, right? I I feel like you're essentially saying that you were trying to explore, you know, Eve's um, own problems with her or, or challenges that she was experiencing about her sexuality. And she wasn't being able to be met with the kind of power dynamics that she realizes she needs in a queer relationship and then gets to explore that in the hetero relationship, um, which seems completely apt to me, but surely there are power dynamics in queer relationships too, no? Of course, absolutely. And I think what's interesting, right, is that as we follow Eve, it's not even clear that she wants to be like the the relationship that she has with Nathan in which he has a certain type of extreme power over her. She does certainly want in that context. Right. But as the book goes on, I don't know whether you interpreted it this way, but it feels that this way to me, like there's also um, an envy of Nathan, like sort of like a gender envy that she Mm -hmm. has. And she starts to like want to treat women in the way that he does and to have that kind of power relationship with women. Um, which, uh, which absolutely attests to your point that like those, those dynamics exist um, in profound and complicated ways in queer relationships too. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's just that there's a, yeah, there's a playing with that, like how it feels for a woman to, to accept and, and enact power in that way versus how it feels for someone like Nathan for whom it's so natural and and it's not like radical at all. Mm -hmm. From page one, you have your narrator making a sort of admission. I was meant to have sex. She says, probably with some wild number of people. Maybe it was more savage than that, that I was meant not to fuck, but to get fucked. Immediately the reader learns that the pleasure of sex for Eve involves some kind of submission. Can you talk a bit about the ways in which submission can create a sexual hierarchy wherein the sub is the one with all the power? Um, you sort of alluded to that earlier in your answer too. What What is powerful about being dominated um, and in what ways could that result in Eve being envious of Nathan? It's interesting. I So I'm not particularly well-versed in kink and I didn't intend the book I mean, I actually think while, while in their dynamic, Eve is generally pretty submissive, it's certainly not like a really concrete BDSM dynamic or anything like that. And so I, I definitely don't feel qualified to speak to that question in general of like, how can, a, how can a submissive really be in power in a sexual relationship? But I do think... I mean, if I, I may... I- I'd, I'd, I'd re- readjust the question just because that totally makes sense. But I guess I, I'm wondering, why do you think women in the context of heterosexual sex specifically, or why do you have these two characters, Olivia and Eve, so determinately wanting to be handled? They want to be handled in sex. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a normalized view of, 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 of just women in heterosexual sex and not men necessarily. Men don't 
aren't normalized with this understanding that they want to be handled. So I guess yeah. if, if I could ask the question in another way too, I, I'm wondering if you could explore why that was um, how you positioned these two women. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important framing because while I don't know whether, I, I think it's clear that Olivia would not frame it this way. The book is framed by Eve and, and the way that she frames the relationship and why she wants that is exactly for the reason that you put it, which is that this is what's normalized for women and this is how women are expected to engage. And so, right, a lot of the meat of the book is Eve being unable to tell whether there is a deeper reason or a personal reason or any kind of intimate reason why that's what she wants with Nathan, or if it's simply her having been taught that this is a thing that women want. And if you're a good version of a woman, then you do this well and you enjoy it. Um, And I think that's very hard for her to disentangle. And a lot of the book is about trying to figure out whether that's personal or whether that's social or whether it's both and, and how to tell. Um, And I, it was important to me to have the contrast in the book of a character like Olivia, who she has an even deeper, she has a much deeper submissiveness uh, than Eve, I think. Like, I do think Eve tries to maintain um, herself and her boundaries and is quite uh, destabilized by by being vulnerable and tries to avoid it. Whereas Olivia's orientation toward sex and intimacy is to really be immediately as vulnerable as she can be. Um, and for Olivia, you know, this question of where her desire to be submissive in that way comes from is completely irrelevant. Like maybe she would, maybe she would agree that it's socialized and not biological, but it has, it's not relevant to her. Like she's not, um, she's not anxious about that question or about who she really is or who she's been constructed as socially. Um, Whereas I think, yeah, Eve is, is deeply anxious about that question in exactly the way that you frame it. Like, this is what a woman's supposed to be. And, and is that why I'm enjoying it? Or, or am I enjoying it because I'm really attracted to it in like some innate way? On the flip side, though, I also think a lot about the ways in which heterosexuality has normalized this idea that men are like these hungry dogs chasing after naked women. Um, It's framed in this way where male desire makes them almost seem like predatory, uh, with women being the prey. But in fact, being the one who is hungered, like if we think about desire, having the capacity to elicit that level of desire is almost, to me, puts women at the top of the the hierarchy of the the power or food chain. Um, And so I guess I wanted to know... And, you know, Eve is so attracted by herself in the in this book. And so I guess I wanted to talk to you about the ways in which sex for heterosexual women, you know, this book is very much in a, a hetero context. Um, is in, in what ways is sex for a woman more about being turned on by the self rather than the partner in ways that I don't even think that maybe men realize because, again, they're the hungry predators <laughs> chasing after this thing. Um, and they think they're here to give this person an orgasm but it's almost like what's giving that person an orgasm is their own eroticism towards themselves. Does that make any sense? It does. I feel like this is such a complicated and controversial issue. And I remember when, of course, Cat Person came out in the New Yorker and um, there was so much backlash about this scene in it, which I remember finding very beautiful where the young protagonist the woman like in her first um sex instance of sex with the boyfriend 
like what she's thinking about as he fucks her is like how beautiful she must seem to him and how special and young and perfect. Um, and she, mm-hmm. like, that is what turns her on about it is like how unattainable she must seem to this hungry man. Um, and people found that I think so offensive and so much a confirmation of like the worst ideas about women, like that women, go around attempting to lord their power over men and that that's what they enjoy about intimacy. I certainly don't think that's true in general, like at all. I think it it's true in moments between Eve and Nathan, but I don't think it's even the center of it, of their relationship in a way. Like I think the moments that have the most of that flavor of Eve being satisfied by her own looks are actually when Nathan takes photos of her and sort of surveys her body and is like, I, you know, I can admire you and approve of you in these very concrete ways that are very like the definition of objectification. Whereas I think actually when they sleep together, what's so special about their relationship for Eve is that they do reach a level of intimacy that, that isn't actually dependent on that, like vanity or physicality. Like I think, they are in a way sexually compatible even beyond that physical attraction. Um, Cause I think there's, I think there's a youthfulness and a very limited satisfaction to that um, like erotic attraction to yourself. Right. Like I have said, I've been realizing as I talk about acts of service, like how definitionally young I feel like Eve's mentality is like, it's so real And I think it's very, it's almost universal at that age. Even if you don't love your body in the way you does, like the obsession with how your body appears to other people and and that being foremost in your mind in sexual relationships. But I think um, it's almost like she needs to get that out of the way with him in the first few chapters. And then she can actually experience intimacy, you know. Eve reflects on her first sexual experience with a girl in high school. Uh, She says, we didn't even really have sex. She came and she hadn't realized she was going to since we were still in our clothes. Maybe she'd never come before. As soon as it happened, it was like she saw something she hadn't been willing to see. She couldn't look away from it. We both knew what it was and we hadn't known what it was going to be like that. That moment shocked us both and that was the end of it. In this reflection, is Eve observing a kind of shame that comes from learning about sex? You know, like, why do you think, obviously, we have our basic historical religious, like, context, but what do you think is so shameful about that moment when you realize how good it can feel? Um, I think it's a bit masochistic, and I think that that's something that this book explores, too. Like, it feels so good you know, even in a greater perception, Eve's relationship or whatever she's doing, she's betraying her partner and she's entering this this situation that it, she spends the whole book deciding is this good or is that bad. And it feels so good that it makes her feel bad. And I guess I wanted to ask what about, ask you more about that sort of masochism. Like are humans low-key averse to pleasure? A first orgasm being something we don't think we could have possibly earned. Um, the pleasure of an affair is something we don't possibly deserve. Um, mm-hmm. In what ways do you think this is, this plays out uh, in this novel, I guess, is another way of asking it. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Certainly, I think a lot of people do have that masochism in them, but I also think even more than that, it's it's so much simpler than masochism and it just has to do with like 
the fact that eroticism is fundamentally tied to, uh, I don't know if the right word is like wrongdoing, betrayal, secrecy, like there's an inherent eroticism to danger and transgression and an inherent sort of like comfort and like lack of eroticism to like the familiar, the familial. Um, and I think it's the, the fear of the orgasm in that scene and the like disbelief at it. Like those are, those are part of what I think make it exciting or if they were, if they were to accept it suddenly and be like, Oh, isn't it this, this great thing that we should do all the time. Like it would immediately lose a lot of its frisson in a way. Um, that's a complicated scene though, because it also, to, in my mind, um, that recollection of Eve's first experience with her girlfriend, like it also has to do definitively with like fear of discovering that they're gay. And like the fact that, you know, like if the fact that, she comes without meaning to or surprising herself like is just somehow this like irreconcilable proof that like she can experience this with a woman and therefore like there must be something um something queer in her sexuality that she prior to that you know sort of felt that she could deny at any time but like once you cross that threshold there's like a undeniability to it or there's there's like a real secret that you have around it I mean, of course, it's a false construction. Like, they've been hooking up. But the the orgasm constitutes this sort of, like, concrete proof in a way. As we've been discussing, Eve is very caught up in trying to sort out what's good and bad. This feels like a relatable experience probably among, like, young adult women. And it's surely informed by the dialogue of feminism. You know, we've been taught to name our oppression in this very specific way, particularly our generation in a, this specific way, um, and made to be a quote-unquote bad woman if we don't name it when we see it or avoid it, which is another kind of oppression no one really talks about, an exhausting responsibility to always be good. You know, I'm thinking very obvious, like, Roxanne Gay's bad feminist idea. Um, but Eve doesn't only want to be good. She wants to feel good. What do you think the difference is between being good and feeling good, if at all? I think they're completely unrelated. Like, usually you feel good when, even if you're not actually doing something wrong, you you aren't acting in a conception of nobility or, like, being good. Because that, it's, like, automatically saps the the excitement or the the feeling good of it in a way I mean there are of course exceptions like uh it's wonderful to be a good friend and have fulfilling relationships and you feel that you're being good and also that you're experiencing this thing that feels good um but when when we're in the theater of eroticism I think they're quite at odds (laughs) um is this like a hurdle to come to come over in contemporary feminism? Is this like a blockage? I don't know. I mean, I have spent, I mean, I did spend my time as a student studying feminism and I still have to say like, I couldn't be less of an expert on it. Like I feel so many people have been asking me about the novel in the framework of feminism or wanting me to um, mm-hmm. like, tease it out in the framework of feminism and it's so like to me feminism is the foundational problem that 
Eve is, is haunted by and working with in the novel. Like the fact that she can't reconcile what feminism says and how she's been socialized. And those, those two things are always trying to be reconciled. Like feminism is trying to say to you, like, you can be empowered in all these ways. And like, it has nothing, you know, you're not at odds with your socialization. And yet she feels that those things are at odds, but I don't actually feel that I'm in that kind of interaction with feminism as a writer of the novel. Like to me, it's just a novel. Um, And a novel has to be, I think like not a manifesto or it's boring. So, you know, you can feel feminism at work in the novel, I think, but it would be impossible for me to say like, here's what the novel is telling you about how you should engage with feminism. Like I have no idea, of course. I mean, the the immense appeal to me in this novel is personally, I love a conflict. I love a, I love a challenge of the norm. Um, And I think that that's what this novel does. It um, takes presuppositions and says, well, wait a second. Um, These are how things are supposed to be. What does it mean when they're just not? Um, So you do have this fairly, you know, independent, strong uh, woman, female narrator, whatever we want to call, define an ideal feminist as. Um, But is it really so simple um, about being good and feeling good as I've asked? Um, But it seems to me, and I guess I'm wondering if similar to the reason that I love this novel is what brought you to it in the first place. Are you bored? I'm bored when the conversation is the same and flat and everyone just wants to talk about sex in this like flattened way where it's just good or bad. Um, There's just good or bad people. I find that extremely boring and unrealistic and certainly not true to life. And I'm wondering if that similar frustration is what brought you to this in fiction in the first place, to exploring this in, in the first place. Yeah, I think it wasn't even boredom, although I certainly understand that as much as like confusion and like a feeling that Mm. I was crazy, like that only I was having this problem and no one else was having the problem. The problem of like, how do I process all of my beliefs about who I'm supposed to be sexually while I'm in a sexual theater. And I'm also supposed to be like, at the same time that I have all these beliefs about who I'm supposed to be sexually. Also, I know that at the end of the day, the ultimate goal and great thing to be is so subsumed by the sex that I don't have any thoughts at all. So it's like, I'm failing on both of these levels. I'm very confused about like, I'm, I'm failing on this intellectual level, but also like sexually, I'm not supposed to be an intellectual. So like I'm failing on a sexual level too. And I was so confused that of course I was, I was young. I was in my early twenties when I started working on this. And so my friends were having sexual problems, but they just weren't, I don't know. They weren't, they weren't troubled in the way that I was by this. And I think probably the reason is this like particular way that I grew up where um, I came out when I was a teenager and all my early relationships were with women. And that was the, and I was studying feminism and, and women's studies and the framework that I went into adulthood with was, I don't know, like with this very theoretical and very um, moral set of ideas about 
like what sex means and what you owe to other people and how you should conceptualize yourself as a, as a full person and as a sexual partner. And then I was just plunged into the great big world of mainstream heterosexuality. And like, (laughs) I was just like, I know that you guys have all been dealing with this since you were teenagers. And so now it doesn't seem like a critical object to you. Like now it's just the world and the water that you're swimming in. But like, I'm looking at it and being like, this is very weird. This is very weird. Um, and I think I just felt like I, 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 when I first was writing the novel, I was like, this isn't going to make sense to anyone else. And no one is going to want to read it. Like it doesn't make any, it's, it felt like the most niche bisexual story that wouldn't make sense to anyone who wasn't like, didn't have the sort of experience that you've had, but that has turned out not to be true, which I'm very grateful for. Like, I think people from across the spectrum of experience are like, wait, this is, this is a weird problem. Here's the thing too. Um, you know, I, I get to be a bookseller, like on the floor, uh, of an independent bookstore. Um, and I've certainly hoped that it's in lieu of it being a weird era pick. And I, I know many people um, have picked up the book per our and my recommendation. But that being said, you never really know what's going to fly off the shelf. You kind of are taken aback. You see sort of, I hate to say it, but like more mainstream readers, more niche readers, more older, older demographics that love a a good thriller. Like you just really never know what's going to surpass across the board. And people are eating this book up in a way that I myself wasn't sure was going to happen because I put it down and I was like, well, now I need to tell everyone about this, but it's going to be a complicated sell. I'm sure I can tell that it's going to be a complicated sell. And I was, I was trying to navigate, how do I explain the value behind this book in ways that I think um, it can initially be dismissed and overlooked. Um, and even with my work, people are in ways that are even surprising me. And I, I say this in, in great admiration of your work are, are just gobbling it up. They range of customers that I've, that have come in that have told me they've sat, sat down and read it in one sitting. It is sitting is like really interesting for me to see just and to learn about society because I have queer people coming in and, and responding to this book. I have hetero people coming in. I have older people. I have younger people. I have, you, you, I thought this book might be limited to just the scope of like our generation, but it's not. And why do you think that is? What is with this pleasant unveiling we were both experiencing about your book? You know, I really appreciate hearing that from you also as a former bookseller, because I, you know, I'm so distant from all of this. Like I've only done one live event and I don't hear from people who have read the book and I don't know how it's selling. It's so new. And I, I have no idea that, you know, that people are encountering it that way. And so I really appreciate you telling me that. Um, It's funny. I just yesterday had a conversation with Mary Gatesgill, who I'm, I assume you're familiar with. She's one of my favorite writers. Um, yes, and I was, I was, you know, she's in, I believe her seventies, um, mm-hmm. and has been writing for a long time about, you know, these issues about sexuality, about feminism, about misogyny, about, um, masochism, certainly. And, you know, I was really excited because she reached out to talk to me about acts of service. And right away, she said to me, at first, when I read the book, I was so alienated and I was so confused and I felt so much um, disdain for your generation because you opened with the scene of posting the nudes online. And I just felt like this was like 
this utterly banal, terrible vanity. And, and then she was like, you know, and then I got to like page 50 or 60 and I, and I just started to realize that even though the language was new to me, like everything that you were writing about is actually like the same things that I went through when I was a young woman and the same, um, things that I've been writing about. I mean, she said this in a, in a complicated way, but, um, you know, I think, I think that's, I mean, of course I'm young and I can't be sure, but that's, it makes sense to me that some older people are encountering it in this way, because to me, it is like so deeply across time. Like I don't encounter like the dynamics that are alive in my life or in the book as being remotely contemporary. Like Mm -hmm. I feel the part of what is so terrifying and deep and also exciting about the themes that are at work in a story like acts of service is that like they feel so deep in history, like as though there's no way you could possibly climb out of like the depth of the pot that you've been born into. Um, And so it does make sense to me, even though there's because of the premise and the way that the relationship begins online, there's, there's a, a, a flavor of contemporary life to it. I I hope that the the story will um, resonate beyond that. Because at the end of the day, it's about sex, and sex is not historically specific. Yeah, I even think at the end of the day, it's about like power more even than it is about sex. And I think that that's just like yeah, the most timeless of of problems. Similar to this idea of a moralistic female responsibility, you have Eve reflect on a kind of moralistic queer responsibility. You write, among queer people, self-knowledge seemed especially important because we engaged in a continuous process of recovering, of judging up what we had suppressed, and of interrogating what we had assumed. Openness and sincerity were prized above all else under a governing practice of radical tolerance, in which speaking about anything at all could yield only benefit and in which secrets could develop into shameful wounds. You know, you're addressing polyamory here fairly directly, and I'll be blunt. um, I think polyamory, you know, this is disclaimer, my very blunt opinion that I am known to have, but I think polyamory often is utilized as a kind of fancy word, and now I will speak pinpoint to a contemporary um, context um, in an attempt to prevent this inevitable heartbreak of challenge that comes for us all. This idea that regardless of the concept of monogamy, we will always be confronted with the reality of being attracted to multiple people. And it's in the very nature of human ego that this will always be a complicated experience, um, regardless of how radically it's approached or not. Um, arguably, this is an incorrect reading of what radicalism can do. And really, if you have you have three main characters in this novel reaping many benefits from their own sexual radicalism. But my question is, why does freedom necessitate radicalism? I don't think it does. No, I don't. Um, I certainly don't think it does. And for me, I think that the book, I attempt the book as a testament to that. Like, I think it's exactly that conception that her sexuality has to accord with her politics. Um, It's exactly that idea that makes her feel unfree. Um, and that sort of Olivia has so much freedom by rejecting off the bat. But you 
probably are inclined like there is power behind radicalism of course of course I guess I guess I think I guess you know I'm not an activist or a politician mm-hmm. I'm just a writer mm-hmm. um and I think one of one of the things that I meant to say in the book or that I think that Eve is uh, thinking a lot about in the last third. I don't want to give anything away, but we do end up in a, in a sort of um, theater of morality in the last third of the book. Um, I think one of the things that she's grappling with is what does radicalism, politics, nobility, what do those things have to do with private sexuality? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not that I don't think they ever have anything to do with each other because we're, we are socialized and therefore we encounter our private relationships with the weight of socialization. But I guess I do think that um, the best and most honest experience comes from, from trying to separate the, the personalism of intimacy from, from that framework. Right. Like I'm, I'm certainly um, we're not, we're not dealing with, the real effects of radicalism in the book, right? Like Eve, Olivia, Nathan, none of them is actually like working on behalf of any pursuit of justice, right? The, the ideas about radicalism that Eve has are purely personal, purely in her mind. And therefore, right. They're, they're sort of purely narcissistic. Like there are ideas that she has about what kind of person she wants to be. They're not actually ideas that she's taking out into the world and that are affecting her behavior. And so I do sort of think that that's the worst vanity in the book is not her physical vanity at all, but, but that vanity that she has about her values and beliefs, which is not borne out by her behavior. Um, And I do think bringing that kind of political vanity into the sexual landscape is, is sort of useless and burdensome. That's interesting because Eve remarks throughout the book about how she's averse to boredom, ugliness, how she's always seeking pleasure and beauty. Um, And despite how superficial this might sound, really she's just following this path like philosophically. She's not a materialistic person. She just, why be alive if being alive isn't beautiful, I feel like is her um, relatable uh, perspective. Um, Why is Eve, as she herself points out, so, and I'm quoting here, terrified of ugliness? Um, yeah, that's not something that Eve is proud of, but I think it's just, um, an orientation that she has toward the world. This, this, you might think this is a cop-out answer and you'll have to push me further if you want to. But, um, one of my favorite books from this year is Sheila Hetty's Pure Color. Um, mm-hmm. and I found it's so moving and so, uh, forgiving and game-changing for me, the portrait that Sheila Um, writes in the first chapter of that book about uh, the different types of people in her fantasy Mm -hmm. about God's world, right? The birds who are inherently artistic and attuned to beauty and the fish who are inherently um, socialistic and attuned to the needs of others and the bears who are inherently attuned to love and, and loyalty. And I think in a way, the way I would put it is that Eve has the orientation of a bird, you know, she's just a person who is um, attentive to beauty much as she would like to be a fish or a bear. 
She does remark a lot on beauty privilege. Um, she admits to how beautiful she herself thinks she is. Uh, Nathan often tells her how attractive she finds her own vanity, and I think that like feeds her even more. Um, in a world where women are mostly taught to hate their appearances or, or themselves with these impossible standards and ideals, what makes vanity so appealing? Because Eve contests this with herself. She's she's sort of like, am I terrible? But I think I'm like gorgeous, <laughs> like and erotic <laughs> and desirable. Um, and it's almost like instead of asking herself if she's terrible for feeling that way, what can be appealing about a woman who is vain? It's so interesting. I think that the most, I think, well, the simple answer is confidence as opposed to insecurity is always appealing, right? Like we love to encounter both sexes, everyone of every orientation, right? We love, we love to encounter, um, someone who we don't have to comfort or reassure um, sexually. And I think that that's inherently appealing to Nathan um, in Eve. But also one of the more interesting conversations I've been having about this question of vanity in the novel is about, someone asked me, I forget who it was, a a very intelligent question about um, the distinction between vanity and self-love, if there is one. And I thought that was I think that that really gets to the heart of it in a really strong way because those, even though they, they amount often in how we understand ourselves to the same thing, right? They amount to confidence, self-love and vanity. We think of, we think of self-love, right? As um, extremely noble and beautiful and generous. And we think of vanity as narcissistic and cruel in a way, like as though you're saying I'm, I'm vain at the expense of other people and self-love is somehow inclusive and positive. And I think the reason is that because we are in this world where women are told to hate their bodies and, and learn to hate themselves on so many levels, self-love implies that you've overcome that and in some way rejected all of this messaging. And that even though there are all of these things that you imagine you should hate about your body, you're unwilling to hate them and you're going to choose love, right? And vanity implies by contrast that uh, you're aware that you have something valuable that other people admire and you've never questioned whether or not you should enjoy the fruits of that thing. Right. And I think that in that framework, it is vanity that you feels it's not self-love, but that's, that's sort of how we distinguish the type of female confidence and lack of insecurity that we find, you know, uh, approval in is like, well, if she had, if she loves herself, then we respect and admire that. And if she's vain, um, there's something that's shameful about it, but I think they amount to that same thing, right? Which is the, um, the freedom of confidence, the way it frees other people from having to tiptoe around you. Uh, Nathan tells Eve that sex serves as a kind of birthday party. Um, he says special and not special, like, Uh, A spark that means your life is happy, a show of desirability, a mark of beauty or prestige or humor, smaller, more superficial than love. And yet, says Eve, I knew that the hour in which sex occurred was the least superficial thing. For that hour, at least, I was absolutely real and present, capable of feeling, intuition, care, vulnerability. Why couldn't I feel like that with the help of the solitary tool like meditation or exercise? She's asking herself why sex is the only tool for which she can feel the most alive, I think. And you're her sort of, as as fiction writers are, her omniscient god, so to speak. Um, 
why is sex the only tool through which she can feel the most alive? That's such a good question. I'm not sure. I think partly it's um, the stage of life that she's in and the things that are troubling her, right? Like she feels in some way deeply misunderstood or alone. Um, that's not that's not a feeling that haunts the novel, I think. But I, I also think it's sort of obviously true when you ask yourself, like, who really understands her? Who, who is she looking at as a map toward how she should be? Like, she doesn't really have someone. And um, I think, you know, there is a... Um, I don't know, like, there's an opportunity for intimacy in the experience of sex that I think nothing else in her life is really providing for her. I mean, I think the experience, the conversations that she has with Nathan and Olivia um, in their relationship that happened beyond sex that happened before or after at a restaurant or, or whatever. I think that those conversations, those are intimate and fulfilling for her in the same way, right? They're this theater in which she can really be open and, and not feel judged and try and get closer to her sense of herself or her ideas through Nathan's sort of ease with, with any topic of conversation and his lack of judgment. Um, but I don't know. I think everyone has a different, if they're lucky, everyone discovers some venue or other where they really feel nourished and, and as though they, um, have a transformative experience. And I think, especially when they're young, it is sex for a lot of people, but sometimes it's something else. Well, so early in the novel, Eve experiences a sort of admiration for people who are religiously inclined for being able to live their lives in, I'm quoting, constant motion towards something perfect. This thought again returns at the end of the novel, but outside of the context of religion or not, is, you know, is sex Eve's religion? It seems to be what can guide her and to put her into constant motivation towards something perfect. Is that right? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it's a very smart question, but yeah, I wouldn't say, I would never want to say like sex is Eve's religion because I think it's too narrow to be that at all. Um, but I think that what it is, is that in the vacuum that a lack of religion has created for even a lot of people in her generation, myself included, um, there, there is a, there's a tendency of things that are narrower than something as profound as religion to fill that gap or to take on that degree of meaning. Um, it doesn't mean that it's successful or that it's a replacement or that Eve would ever conceptualize it as profound and vast in the way that religion can be. Um, but I do think that her attachment to sex has the flavor that it does in part because she's missing a guiding framework of that size. Um, it's a really complicated question because I, I'm not religious, but I, from having read a lot of books about religion and religious people, it's one of my main interests. I do think that often an experience like sex or another um, experience of transformation or intimacy like that for a religious person can have a religious flavor, right? Like rather than being outside 
the umbrella of religion. It's something that is religious or that um, channels God in a way. And I think that's that's how Eve is experiencing it, even though she doesn't have a a God to name. Do you like Sally Rooney novels? Um, I do really enjoy Sally Rooney novels. That's a, that's a very complicated question in this day and age, but I've read all of Sally Rooney's novels and I really enjoy them. Thank you, Lillian. This was great. Um, uh, listeners, you can go ahead and pick up a copy of um, uh, Acts of Service uh, on the Weird shelf at Library St. Henry Books. And thank you again, Lillian, for this great conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you asking for me as a bookseller too.